9. Airing purposes. In the bottom was a valved aperture, into which water could be admitted when it was desired to sink the machine, while the water could be ejected by two brass pumps when the operator wished to arise again. The torpedo arrangement consisted of two pieces of oak timber, hollowed out and filled with powder. The space containing a clockwork arrangement that could be set to run any time desired, and a contrivance for exploding the powder when the time expired. This torpedo was fixed in the rear of the vessel, and was provided with a strong screw, that could be turned by the operator, so as to fasten it under the bottom of a ship or in other desired location. So far as appeared, the contrivance was not in promising, it failed in its purpose, but solely, if the word of the operator may be taken from the absence of an indispensable article of supply. What this was will appear in the sequel. Captain Bushnell's brother had volunteered for the perilous enterprise. A sudden sickness prevented him, and his place was taken by a venturesome new London sergeant named Abijah Shipman, or, as rechristened by his companions, Long Big. He was an amphibious chap, half sailor, half soldier, long, thin, and bony, and not wanting in Yankee humor. He had courage enough to undertake any enterprise, if he could only be primed with rum and tobacco, articles which he deemed the leading necessaries of life. It was an early hour of a July morning. The sun had not appeared on the eastern horizon. By a wharf side on the Hudson floated the strange marine monster whose powers were about to be tested. On the shore stood Putnam and many other officers. In their midst was a beach shipman, ready to start on his dangerous enterprise. It was proposed to tow the nondescript affair into the stream, set it adrift on the tide, and trust to Obija's skill to bring it under the bottom of the Eagle, Admiral Howe's flagship, which had been chosen for the victim. If the magazine could be attached to the bottom of this vessel, she must surely be destroyed, but certainly the chances seemed greatly against its being thus attached. Everything was ready. Obija stepped on board his craft, entered the airtight chamber, closed the cover, and was about to screw it down, when suddenly it flew open again, and his head emerged, thunder and marlin spikes, he exclaimed, who's got a cut of tobacco, this old cut won't last, anyhow, and he threw away the worn out lump on which he had been chewing, a laugh followed his appeal, such of the officers as used the wig felt hastily in their pockets, they were empty of the indispensable article, there was no hope for Abijah, daylight was at hand, time was precious, he must sail short of supplies. You see how it island my brave fellow, said Putnam. We continental officers are too poor to raise even a tobacco plug. Push off. Tomorrow, after you have sent the eagle on its last flight, some of our southern officers shall order you a full keg of old Virginia weed. It's too bad, muttered Abijah, dejectedly. And mind you, General, if the old turtle doesn't do her duty, it's all long of me going to sea without tobacco. Down went Abijah's head. The cover was tightly screwed into place, and the machine was towed out into the channel and cast loose. Away it floated towards the British fleet, which lay well up in the narrows. The officers made their way to the battery, where they waited in much suspense the result of the enterprise. An hour slowly moved by. Morning broke. The rim of the sun lifted over the distant waters. Yet the eagle still rode unharmed. Something surely had happened. The torpedo had failed. Possibly the venturesome Abijah was reposing in his stranded machine on the bottom of the bay. Putnam anxiously swept the waters in the vicinity of the eagle with his glass. Suddenly he exclaimed, There he is. The top of the turtle had just emerged. In a little bay a short distance to the left of Howe's flagship, it was seen as quickly by the sentinels on the eagle, 
who fired at the strange aquatic monster with such good aim that Abijah popped under the water as hastily as he had emerged from it. On board the eagle, confusion evidently prevailed. This strange contrivance had apparently filled the mariners with alarm. There were signs of a hasty effort to get underway, and wings were added to this haste when a violent explosion took place in the immediate vicinity of the fleet, hurling up great volumes of water into the air. The machine had been set to run an hour, and had duly gone off at its proper time, but, for some reason yet to be explained, not under the eagle, the whole fleet was not long in getting up its anchors, setting sail, and scurrying down the bay to a safer abiding place below, and here they lay until the day of the Battle of Long Island, not venturing again within reach of that naval nondescript. As for the turtle, Boats at once set out to Obija's relief and he was taken off in the vicinity of Governor's Island. On landing and being questioned, he gave, in his own odd way, the reasons of his failure. Just as I said, General, he remarked, it all failed for the want of that cut of tobacco. You see, I am nervous without tobacco. I got under the eagle's bottom, but somehow the screw struck the iron bar that passes from the rudder panel, and wouldn't hold on anyhow I could fix it. Just then I let go the oar to feel for a cud, to steady my nerves, and I hadn't any. The tide swept me under her counter, and away I slipped top the water. I couldn't manage to get back, so I pulled the lock and let the thunderbox slide. That's what comes of sailing short of supplies. Say, can't you raise a cud among you now? There is another interesting story to tell, in connection with the British occupation of New York, which may be fitly given here. The Battle of Long Island had been fought. The American forces had been safely withdrawn. Washington had moved the main body of his army, with the bulk of the stores, from the city, leaving General Putnam behind, in command of the rear guard. Putnam's position was a perilous one. The configuration of Manhattan Island is such that the British could land a force from the East River, throw it across the narrow width of the island, and cut off retreat from below. The only trust lay in the shore batteries and they proved useless. A British landing was made at Kipps Bay, about three miles above the city, where were works strong enough to have kept off the enemy for a long time. Had they been well defended, as it was, the garrison fled in a panic, on the bare appearance of the British transports. At the same time three ships of war moved up the Hudson to Bloomingdale, and attacked the works there. The flight of the Kipps Bay garrison left Putnam in the most imminent peril. He had about three thousand men and a dangerous encumbrance of women, children, camp followers, and baggage. The weather was very hot. The roads were narrow, everything tended to make the retreat difficult and perilous. The instant he heard of the unlooked-for cowardice of the Kipps Bay garrison and the landing of the enemy, he put his men in motion, and strained every nerve to push them past the point of danger before his channel of escape should be closed. Safety seemed a forlorn hope. The British had landed in force above him. A rapid march would quickly bring them to the Hudson. The avenue of exit would be closed. The danger of capture was extreme. It was averted by one of those striking incidents of which so many give interest to the history of war. In this case it was a woman whose coolness and quick wit proved the salvation of Putnam's imperiled army. Sir Henry Clinton, having fairly landed his men at Kipps Bay, put them quickly into motion to cut off Putnam's retreat. In his march for this object, his route lay along the eastern side of Murray Hill, where was the residence of Mrs. Murray, mother of Lindley Murray, the grammarian, and a most worthy old Quaker lady. Putnam had sent her a word, some time before, of his perilous situation, begging her, if possible, to detain General Clinton. 
by entertaining him and his officers. If their march could be hindered for an hour it would be an invaluable service. The patriotic old lady was quick to respond. Many of the British officers knew her, and when she appeared, with a welcoming smile, at her door, and cordially invited them to step in and take a friendly glass of wine, the offer was too tempting to be refused. Exhausted with the heat and with the labor of disembarking, they were only too glad to halt their columns for a short rest, and follow her into her comfortable dining room. Here Mrs. Murray and the ladies of her family exerted themselves to entertain their guests. The wine proved excellent. The society and conversation of the ladies were a delightful change from the duties of the camp. The minutes became an hour before the guests dreamed of the flight of time. At length the Negro servant, who had been on the lookout from the housetop, entered the room, made a significant sign to his mistress, and at once withdrew. Mrs. Murray now rose, and with a meaning smile turned to her titled guest. Will you be kind enough to come with me, Sir Henry? She asked. I have something of great interest to show you. With pleasure, he replied, rising with alacrity, and following her from the room, she led the way to the lookout in the upper story, and plumped to the northern side of the hill, where could be seen the American flag, proudly waving over the ranks of the retiring army. They were marching in close array into the open plain of Bloomingdale. How do you like the prospect, Sir Henry? She calmly inquired. We consider the view from this side an admirable one. What Sir Henry replied. History has not recorded. No doubt it lacked the quality of politeness. Down the stairs he rushed. Calling to his officers as he passed Leaped upon his horse. And could scarcely find words in his nervous haste to give orders for pursuit. He was too late. The gap was closed. But nothing. Except such baggage and stores as could not be moved. Remained in the trap which if sprung an hour earlier, would have caught an army, only for Mrs. Murray's inestimable service. Putnam and his men would probably have become prisoners of war. Her name lives in history among those of the many heroines who so ably played their part in the drama of American liberty, and who should hold high rank among the makers of the American Commonwealth. A QUAKRESS patriot, in Philadelphia, on 2nd Street below Spruce, formerly stood in an equated mansion, known by the name of Loxley's House it having been originally the residence of Lieutenant Loxley, who served in the artillery under Braddock, and took part in his celebrated defeat. During the Revolution this house was the scene of an interesting historical incident, which is well worth relating. At that time it was occupied by a Quaker named Dura, or perhaps we should say by his wife Lydia, who seems to have been the ruling spirit of the house. During the British occupation of Philadelphia, when patriots and royalists alike had to open their mansions to their none too welcome guests. The Dura mansion was used as the quarters of the British adjutant general. In that day it was somewhat out of town, and was frequently the scene of private conferences of the higher officers, as being somewhat secluded. On one chill and snowy day, the 2d of December, 1777, the adjutant general appeared at the house and bade Mrs. Dura to prepare the upper back room for a meeting of his friends which would take place that night. They may stay late, he said, and added, emphatically, be sure, Lydia, that your family are all in bed at an early hour. When our guests are ready to leave the house I will give you notice, that you may let us out and extinguish the fire and candles. Mrs. Dura obeyed, yet she was so struck by the mystery with which he seemed inclined to surround the projected meeting, that she made up her mind to learn, if possible, what very secret business was afoot. She obeyed his orders literally, saw that her people were early in bed, and, after receiving the officers, 
retired herself to her room, but not to sleep. This conference might presage some peril to the American cause. If so, she wished to know it. When she deemed the proper time had come, she removed her shoes, and in stocking feet stole softly along the passage to the door of the apartment where the officers were in consultation. Here the keyhole served the purpose to which that full opening has so often been put, and enabled her to hear tidings of vital interest. For some time only a murmur of voices reaches her ears. Then silence fell, followed by one of the officers reading in a clear tone. She listened intently, for the document was of absorbing interest. It was an order from Sir William Howe, arranging for a secret attack on Washington's camp at White Marsh. The troops were to leave the city on the night of the 4th under cover of the darkness, and surprise the rebels before daybreak. The fair eavesdropper had heard enough. Rarely had Keyhole Listener been so well rewarded. She glided back to her room, and threw herself on her bed. She was none too soon. In a few minutes afterwards steps were heard in the passage and then came a rap upon her door. The fair conspirator was not to be taken unawares, she feigned not to hear. The rap was repeated a second and a third time. Then the shrewd woman affected to awake, answered in a sleepy tone, and, learning that the adjutant general and his friends were ready to leave, arose and saw them out. Lydia Dura slept no more that night. The secret she had learned banished slumber. What was to be done? This thought filled her mind the night long. Washington must be warned, but how? Should she trust her husband? or some other member of her family, remember they were all leaky vessels, she would trust herself alone, before morning she had devised a plan of action, and for the first time since learning that eventful news the anxious woman gave her mind a moment's rest, that early dawn she was astir, flour was needed for the household, she woke her husband and told him of this, saying that she must make an early journey to Frankfurt to supply the needed stores, this was a matter of ordinary occurrence in those days, the people of Philadelphia being largely dependent upon the Frankfurt Mills for their flour, and being obliged to go for it themselves. The idea of house-to-house delivery had not yet been born. Mr. Dura advised that she should take the maid with her, but she declined. The maid could not be spared from her household duties. She said, it was a cold December morning. The snow of the day before had left several inches of its white covering upon the ground. It was no very pleasant journey which lay before Mrs. Dura. Frankfurt was some five miles away, and she was obliged to traverse this distance afoot, and return over the same route with her load of flour. Certainly comfort was not the ruling consideration in those days of our forefathers. A ten-mile walk through the snow for a bag of flour would be an unmentionable hardship to a 19th century housewife. On foot, and bag in hand, Mrs. Dura started on her journey through the almost untrodden snow, stopping at General House headquarters on Market Street near 6th, to obtain the requisite passport to leave the city. It was still early in the day when the devoted woman reached the mills. The British outposts did not extend to this point, those of the Americans were not far beyond. Leaving her bag at the mill to be filled, Mrs. Dura, full of her vital mission, pushed on through the wintry air, ready to incur any danger or discomfort if thereby she could convey to the Patriot Army the important information which she had so opportunely learned. Fortunately. She had not far to go. At a short distance out she met Lieutenant Colonel Craig, who had been sent out by Washington on a scouting expedition in search of information. She told him her story begged him to hasten to Washington with the momentous tidings and not to reveal her name and hurried back to the mill. Here she shouldered the bag of flour, and trudged her five miles home. 
reaching there in as reasonably short a time as could have been expected. Night came, the next day passed. They were a night and day of anxious suspense for Lydia Dura. From her window, when night had again fallen, she watched anxiously for movements of the British troops. Ah, there at length they go, long lines of them, marching steadily through the darkness, but as noiselessly as possible. It was not advisable to alarm the city. Patriot scouts might be abroad. When morning dawned the restless woman was on the watch again. The roll of a drum came to her ears from a distance. Soon afterwards troops appeared. Weary and discontented warriors, marching back, they had had their night's journey in vain. Instead of finding the Americans off their guard and an easy prey, they had found them wide awake, and ready to give them the hottest kind of a reception. After maneuvering about their lines for a vulnerable point, and finding none, the doughty British warriors turned on their track and marched disconsolately homeward. Having had their labor for their pains, the army authorities were all at sea. How had this information got afoot? Had it come from the Durant House? Possibly, for there the conference had been held. The adjutant general hastened to his quarters, summoned the fair Quakers to his room, and after locking the door against intrusion, turned to her with a stern and doubting face. Were any of your family up? Lydia, he asked. On the night when I had visitors here, Mumber, she replied, they all retired at eight o'clock. This was quite true so far as retiring went. Nothing was said about a subsequent rising. It is very strange, he remarked, musingly. You, I know, were asleep, for I knocked at your door three times before you heard me, yet it is certain that we were betrayed. I am altogether at a loss to conceive who could have given Washington information of our intended attack. But on arriving near his camp we found him ready, with troops under arms and cannon planted, prepared at all points to receive us. We have been compelled to turn on our heels, and march back home again, like a parcel of fools, as may well be surmised. The patriotic Lydia kept her own counsel, and not until the British had left Philadelphia was the important secret of that signal failure made known. The siege of Fort Schuyler, all was terror in the valley of the Mohawk, for its fertile fields and happy homes were threatened with the horrors of Indian warfare. All New York State, indeed, was in danger. The hopes of American liberty were in danger. The deadliest peril threatened the patriotic cause, for General Burwine, with an army of more than 7,000 men, was encamped at Street John's, at the foot of Lake Champlain, prepared to sweep down that lake and Lake George, marched to the valley of the Upper Hudson, driving the feeble colonial forces from his path, and by joining with a force sent up the Hudson from New York City cut off New England from the remaining colonies and hold this hotbed of rebellion at his mercy. It was a well-devised and threatening scheme. How disastrously for the royalists it ended all readers of history know, with this great enterprise. However, we are not here concerned, but with a side issue of Burwine's march whose romantic incidents fitted for our pages, on the Mohawk River, at the head of boat navigation, stood a fort, built in 1758, and named Fort Stanwix repaired in 1776, and named Fort Schuyler. The possession of this fort was important to General Burwine's plan. Its defense was a vital moment to the inhabitants of the Mohawk Valley. Interest for the time being centered round this outpost of the then almost unbroken wilderness. On one side Lieutenant Colonel Street Legger was dispatched, at the head of 700 rangers, to sail up the St. Lawrence and Lake Ontario to Oswego, and from that point to march southward rousing and gathering the Indians as he went, capture Fort Schuyler, sweep the valley of the Mohawk with the aid of his savage allies, 
and joined Berwine at Albany when his triumphant march should have reached that point. On the other side no small degree of haste and consternation prevailed. Colonel Gonsevoort had been placed in command at the fort with a garrison of 750 men, but he found it in a state of perilous dilapidation. Originally a strong square fortification, with bomb-proof bastions, glotches, covered way, and ditch outside the ramparts, it had been allowed to fall into decay, and strenuous efforts were needed to bring it into condition for defense. Meanwhile, news of the coming danger had spread widely throughout the Mohawk Valley, and everywhere the most lively alarm prevailed. An Oneida Indian brought the news to the fort, and from there it made its way rapidly through the valley. Consternation was widespread. It was too late to look for aid to a distance. The people were in too great a panic to trust to themselves. That the rotten timbers of the old fort could resist assault seemed very doubtful. If they went down, and Brant with his Indians swept the valley, for what horrors might they not look? It is not surprising that, for the time, fear drove valor from almost every heart in the imperiled region. Up Lake Oneida came the enemy, now 1700 strong. St. Legger with his rangers having been joined by Johnson, Butler, and Brant with their Tories and Indians. Every tribe of the Iroquois had joined the invaders with the exception of the Oneidas, who remained faithful to the colonists. On the 2nd of August, 1777, Brent with his savage followers reached and invested the fort, the plumed and moccasined foe suddenly breaking from the forest, and with their wild war hoops seeking to intimidate the beleaguered garrison. On the next day came St. Legger with his whole force. On the fourth the siege commenced. Bombs were planted and threw their shells into the fort. The Indians, concealed behind bushes and trees, picked off with their arrows the men who were diligently employed in strengthening the parapets, and during the evening the savages, spreading through the woods, sought, by frightful yells, to drive all courage from the hearts of the defenders. Meanwhile, aid was approaching. The valor of the patriots which fled at the first threat of danger, had returned. The enemy was now almost at their doors, their helpless families might soon be at the mercy of the ruthless savages, when General Herkimer, a valiant veteran, called for recruits. Armed men flocked in numbers to his standard. He was quickly at the head of more than 800 men. He sent a messenger to the fort, telling Gonsevoort of his approach, and bidding him to discharge three signal guns to show that the tidings had reached him. His small army was called to a halt within hearing of the guns of the fort, as he deemed it the part of prudence to await the signal before advancing on the foe. Unfortunately for the brave Herkimer, his men, lately over-timid, were now overbold. His officers demanded to be led at once to the fort. Two of them, Cox and Paris by name, were impertinent in their demands, charging the veteran with cowardice. I am placed over you as a father and guardian, answered Herkimer, calmly and shall not lead you into difficulties, from which I may not be able to extricate you. But their importunities and taunts continued, and at length the brave old man, angered by their insults, gave the word, march on. He continued, you, who want to fight so badly now, will be the first to run when you smell burnt powder. On they marched, in tumultuous haste, and with the lack of discipline of a trained militia. It was now August 6th, two days after the beginning of the siege. Indian scouts lurked everywhere in the forest, and the movements of the Patriot Army were closely watched. St. Legger was informed of their near approach, and at once took steps to intercept their advance. Heedless of this, and of the cautious words of their commander, the vanguard pressed hastily on, winding along the road, and at length entering a deep curving ravine, 
over whose marshy bottom the roadway was carried by a causeway of earth and logs. The borders of the ravine were heavily timbered, while a thick growth of underwood masked its sloping sides. Utterly without precaution, the militia pushed forward into this doubtful passage, until the whole body, with the exception of the rear guard, had entered it. Behind them came the baggage wagons. All was silent, and naturally silent, for not even the chirp of a squirrel nor the rustle of a prowling ground animal broke the stillness. The fort was not far distant. The hurrying provincials hoped soon to join their beleaguered friends. Suddenly, from the wooded hill to the west, around which the ravine curved in a semicircle, rose a frightful sound. The Indian war whoop from hundreds of savage throats. Hardly had it fallen on the startled ears of the patriots when the sharp crack of musketry followed, and leaden missiles were hurled into the crowded ranks. Arrows accompanied them, and spears and tomahawks came hurtling through the air hurled with deadly aim. The Patriot Army had fallen into a dangerous ambuscade. Herkimer's prediction was fulfilled. The rear guard, on hearing the warlike sounds in front, turned in panic flight, leaving their comrades to their fate. No one can regret to hear that they were pursued by the Indians, and suffered more than if they had stood their ground. As for the remainder of the force, flight was impossible. They had entered a trap. It was fight or fall. Bullets, arrows, war axes hurtled through their ranks. Frightful yells still filled the air. Many fell where they stood. Herkimer was severely wounded, his horse being killed and his own leg shattered. But, with a composure and cool courage that had rarely been emulated, he ordered the saddle to be taken from his horse and placed against a large peach tree nearby. Here seated, with his men falling and the bullets of the enemy whistling perilously near, he steadily gave his orders while many of those who had called him coward were in full flight. During the heat of the action he took his tinder box from his pocket, calmly lighted his pipe, and sat smoking as composedly as though by his own fireside. A striking spectacle, that old man, sitting in the midst of hottest battle, with the lifeblood oozing from his shattered leg, smoking and giving his orders with the quiet composure of one on dress parade. It is one of the most imposing pictures in the portrait gallery of American history. The battle went on, if it was to be fight or fall. The brave frontiersmen decided it should be fight. Great confusion reigned at first, but courage soon returned, and though men fell in numbers, the survivors stood their ground like veterans. For nearly an hour the fierce affray continued. The enemy surrounded the provincials on all sides, and were pressing step by step closer. The whole force might have been slain or captured, but for a wise suggestion of one of their number and an admirable change in their line of battle, each small group was formed into a circle and thus they met the enemy at all points. This greatly increased their defensive powers. So destructive now became their fire that the British soldiers rushed upon them in rage, seeking to break their line by a bayonet charge. They were boldly met, and a hand-to-hand death struggle began. At this moment a heavy thunder peal broke from the darkening skies. Down poured the rain in drenching showers. Lightning filled the air. Crash after crash of thunder rolled through the sky checked in their bloodthirst by the fury of the elements. The combatants hastily separated and ran for the shelter of the trees, vanquished by water where fire had failed to overcome their rage. The affair so far had not been unlike that of Braddock's defeat, some twenty years before, but these were American militia, not British regulars, frontiersmen who knew too much of Indian fighting to stand in their ranks and be shot down. They had long since taken to the trees, and fought the savages in their own way. To this perhaps, may be ascribed the difference in result from that of the Braddock fight. After the rain, 
the Patriots gained better ground and adopted new and full tactics. Before, when the Indians noticed a shot from behind a tree, they would rush forward and tomahawk the unlucky provincial before he could reload. But now two men were placed behind each tree, so that when the whooping savage sprang forward with his tomahawk a second bullet was ready to welcome him. The fire from the American side now grew so destructive that the Indians began to give way. A body of Johnson's Greens came up to their support. These were mostly loyalist refugees from the Mohawk Valley, to whom the Patriot militia bore the bitterest enmity. Recognizing them, the maddened provincials leaked upon them with tiger-like rage, and a hand-to-hand contest began, in which knives and bayonets took the place of bullets, and the contest grew brutally ferocious. At this moment a firing was heard in the direction of the fort. New hope sprang into the hearts of the Patriots. Was aid coming to them from the garrison? It seemed so, indeed, for soon a body of men in continental uniform came marching briskly towards them. It was a ruse on the part of the enemy which might have proved fatal. These men were Johnson Greens disguised as continentals. A chance revealed their character. One of the Patriots seeing an acquaintance among them, ran up to shake hands with him. He was seized and dragged into their ranks. Captain Gardiner, perceiving this, sprang forward, spear in hand, and released his man, but found himself in a moment engaged in a fierce combat, in which he killed two of his antagonists and wounded another, but was himself seriously hurt. For God's sake, Captain, cried some of the militia, you are killing our own men. They are not our own men. They are four eyes, yelled back the captain. Fire away. Fire they did and with such deadly effect that numbers of the disguised Tories fell, and nearly as many Indians. In an instant the battle was violently raging again, with roar of rifles, clash of steel, yells of combatants, and the wild war hoops of the savages. But the Indians by this time had enough of it. The stubborn defense of the provincials had sadly thinned their ranks, and seeing the Tories falling back, they raised their cry of retreat, Puna, Puna, and at once broke and fled. The Tories and regulars, dismayed by their flight, quickly followed, the bullets of the provincials adding wings to their speed, thus ended one of the hottest and most deadly, for the numbers engaged, of the battles of the revolution.